The sermon text this morning picks up in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, and we'll read um, into chapter 5 through verse 16. These are the words of the living God. And being let go, they went to their own company, this is the apostles being released from jail, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, the rulers are gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel had determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak the word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said of any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according to he had need, as he had need." And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of Consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all of them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and they shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and, carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest... Durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And there came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we live in a land and among a people that does not fear you at all. And this brazen arrogance that's all around us often rubs off on us. 
So, Father, we come before you now. We bow before you and before your word in particular. And we ask you to teach us the fear of the Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us so that we might have the fear of the Lord, so that we might be wise. And so, Father, we ask for this in the name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. The fear of the Lord is strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord, by the fear of the Lord, there is riches. Those are all quotations from the scriptures. You can do that same search on your own. Fear of the Lord, beginning of wisdom, it's clean, endures forever. The beginning of knowledge, it prolongs life. It is strong confidence. It's a fountain of life, and by the fear of the Lord, there is riches. Do you think that way? Do you think that way? Do you think what I need is the fear of the Lord? There's this challenge at school. There's this challenge in my family. There's this tangle in my extended family. There's this difficulty at work, or as you think about the future, what you are called to, what does God have for you, is one of the central things you're praying for, the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the, it's the beginning of knowledge. It's, it's where the good life is. It's where confidence is. It's where wealth is. Do you think like that? It, the fear of the Lord is rarely emphasized, rarely taught in modern churches. I mean, if you ever visited a, a church or gone to their website, as you're, you're maybe on vacation or something, and you know, emblazoned on the front pages, we fear the Lord. Come here and fear the Lord with us. Was, I don't, maybe maybe you've seen it, but it's I, I I haven't. No, no, the emphasis is is basically the opposite of that. I mean, you could almost summarize a lot of the advertisements and church signs as, don't worry, we don't fear the Lord. Right? I mean, that's, I mean, you know, come as you are, come casual, you know, we hand out flip-flops at the door, whatever. It, but it's, it's casual, breezy, don't worry, we don't take this seriously, everyone feels comfortable, you'll never feel uncomfortable. Coffee's in the lobby. Nothing wrong with coffee in the lobby. But, but you, you know what I mean. Everything's an emphasis on making sure everyone feels comfortable. Making sure everyone feels very, very safe. It's about breeziness. It's about casualness. It's a, it's a coffee date with God, and maybe the pastor is going to have a friendly chat with you. But God says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is clean, 
enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. The fear of the Lord is where strong confidence lies. Notice that basically, I think you can almost, you probably do some kind of graph that as the churches determined not to talk about the fear of the Lord, the churches got weaker and weaker. The, the, the less the fear of the Lord was talked about, the less the fear of the Lord was pursued, the less potent they were. The less they had to say, the less anyone cared what they had to say. Now, this fear of the Lord is not craven. It's not a cowering fear for those who know the Lord Jesus, but it is an honest, reverent, clean fear. It acknowledges that God is perfectly holy, and we are not. It acknowledges that God is completely almighty. He rules every atom, every detail, every grain of sand, every particle of dust, every planet, every galaxy. He holds it in his hand and turns it, whichever way he wills. The fear of the Lord acknowledges that God is the highest and the greatest, and we are tiny before him. It acknowledges that he knows all things and that everything is laid bare before him. Everything is laid bare before him. He knows all things. He rules all things. And he's good. But it still trembles. It still trembles. A great deal of this portion of text is emphasizing fear. There are things here that uh, the fear of man is, is illustrated and the fear of God set side by side. You've got rulers who have threatened. That could be something that would be fearful. You've got people who are trying to run a scam on God, apparently fearing man, apparently fearing what it looks like. And then you have God acting, and the people tremble. So let's look at this text together, verse by verse. We pick up here in verse 23, where the the, the apostles, Peter and John, have been released from custody from the Jewish authorities, and they return to the company of the Christians, and they report everything that was done. We looked at this last week. They report back um, how they basically threatened them. They commanded them to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Uh, but at the same time, they couldn't really do anything to them because a great wonder had been done. A lame man had been healed. And he was standing right there in their midst, and he had been around for 40 years. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew his name. And there he was walking. And so they knew they couldn't just straight up punish them. He couldn't straight up squash it, but they threatened them and told them to stop preaching in his name. So they come back and they report everything to the other Christians. And notice what their response is. Their response is worship. Their response is worship. When they heard that, verse 24, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, they pour out their hearts to God in worship. Verses 23 to 30. Specifically, it says they sing and pray. Uh, we're not told exactly if they sung it or just prayed a portion of it, but they, uh, they, they cite Psalm 2. This is the, what's, uh, what they quote in verse 25, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathens rage 
And the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So they cite Psalm 2. They sing or pray it back to the Lord. And they apply it before God to what happened to Jesus. That's verses 25 and 27. They say that's exactly what happened with Jesus. Pontius Pilate, the the Jewish leaders, Herod, the Gentiles, the people of Israel. Hey, that's just like Psalm 2. They... The people imagined vain things. The heathen raged. They conspired against the Messiah, against Christ. So they say this is talking about Jesus, and they tell the Lord that. They acknowledge the sovereignty of God over it all. Notice that they say that everything that was done in Jerusalem, they did whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined beforehand to be done. Verse 28, they acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Not one detail that happened during the betrayal, the arrest, the beating, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, all of it was according to God's plan. They did whatever God's counsel had determined beforehand would be done. That brings us through verse 28. They They acknowledge the sovereignty of God over it all. And what did they do? They asked for more boldness to continue speaking, which means they're asking God for the courage to disobey. Right? That's what they're asking for. Lord, they told us to stop, so please give us courage to disobey. Please give us boldness to obey you and ignore everything they just said. That's what they're praying for. They're praying for the boldness to completely disregard these uh, these illegal, immoral commands. And they pray for signs to accompany the word, to demonstrate that their word is true, that their testimony is true, that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's verses 28 to 30. The text says that their prayer is answered immediately with the house being shaken, and then the word of God begins to be proclaimed boldly. That's verse 31. Now, as we noted previously, Between the free generosity of the gospel, the immediate needs of thousands of new converts, many who are from out of town, and the expectation of the destruction of Jerusalem in the near future, the people began selling lands and houses, and the apostles initially oversaw the administration of the funds. We see this in verses 32 37. I noted this when we were looking at chapter 2, but sometimes people will point to texts like this and say, see, uh, Christianity teaches some kind of proto-socialism or communism. See, they they don't own anything, there's no private property, and everything is uh, being redistributed. Well, no, not at all. Um, That's false, um, completely false. And Peter, when he's addressing Ananias and Sapphira about their land and the proceeds from their land explicitly says so. Explicitly says so. Explicitly says, this is your property. You didn't have to sell it. And once you sold it, the proceeds were yours also. You didn't have to give it. The problem was not that they didn't give it all. The problem was that they, they purported to give it all and held some back. The problem was that they lied. That's the sin. They didn't have to give it all. Some people did, but they didn't have to. It was all completely free. The reasons, again, given uh, for why a number of people were selling lands at this time 
and, uh, and, and houses and so forth is, yes, some of them were just being completely freely generous. Some of them saw the need and said, I've got an extra house, I'll sell it, and um, we'll, we'll, we'll help out with the needs. There's a bunch of new Christians. Um, there was also thousands of new Christians. And remember, this is right on the heels of Pentecost, and so thousands of Christians had come in, thousands of Jews had come into town, been converted, and rather than send them right back out, having just heard about Jesus, it made sense for them to stick around for a little while to get discipled, to get taught, to understand the gospel that they had believed in before going home. So again, you have a, it's like, you know, what if Grace Agenda last, you know, lasted three months, you know, or, or the missions conference or whatever. The needs for hospitality immediately shoot through the roof. And so um, a number of, of generous Christians said, I've got extra land, I'll sell it, I'll give to that. This is really important. This is a key moment in the kingdom and so forth. And then remember the third component in this is the fact that Jesus had prophesied very clearly that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. So if you knew that your land and your house was going to get nuked within a generation, chances are good that you might think this is probably a good time to sell. And Jesus had actually said, you should probably start planning to move out. You know, he says, some of you might get caught in the middle of it, and if you get caught in the middle of it, don't go back to your, don't go back to your house. If you see the army surrounding the city, run. Some people were going to get caught in it, but a few people probably started piecing things together and thought, oh, this is probably a good time to sell. And look, I can be, I can be really generous. I can be useful. So there's all, this is not communism. This is not proto-socialism of any sort. This is Christians being Christians and being wise. So Ananias and Sapphira conspired together in the midst of this to lie about giving the entire proceeds from a land sale to the church. You see this in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Ananias initially brings the gift alone. Peter confronts him for lying to the Holy Spirit, insisting that the land and the money was his to use freely as he wanted to. Ananias, Ananias uh, immediately fell down dead. Verses 3 to 6. Three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, shows up, and Peter asks her specifically a question in order to see if is she in on this or not. Is she in on this, or maybe even even if she had been in on it, would she be willing to break there in front of the apostle? Would she confess? Would she say, you know, no, 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 I, yes, I was in it on it, but, uh, but no, I don't want to do that. It, it, it was a lie. But no, she lies uh, bold-faced to the apostle, and more importantly, to the Holy Spirit. And so she falls down dead also, verses 7 to 10. And as a consequence of this, Great fear came upon everyone. Great fear came upon everyone as God answered the prayers of the apostles through signs and wonders, including the sign and wonder of Ananias and Sapphira being struck down dead, and many healings, and many more people believed. It says multitudes of men and women believed. Again, just as a side note, we, we noted this last time, all through the book of Acts, there are it's controversy after controversy, uh, commotion after commotion, and, and if you, and you're just reading through the book of Acts, there's, there's thing after thing that you might think in your flesh, oh no, oh no, the fledgling church, oh no, that's it, Peter and John, you know, Peter and John are in jail, oh no, oh no, the leader, they're in jail, it's in the, it's in the papers, you know, lead pastors in jail, right, no, no. And then two people are dead. Oh, no. 
<laughs> you know, freak cult, you know, <laughs> husband and wife dead in the paper, right? And everybody's thinking, oh no. Do you go to that church? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I visited once, but <laughs> is that your pastor? No, no, no. I don't know about him. He, he says crazy things. Right? You see? But what does Luke say? Right in the middle of it. Right in the middle. Were a bunch of people freaked out by it? Yes. And he says that. Right? He says, and the rest, he, he says, um, and the rest, the people that are not gathering regularly, durst no man join himself to them. Durst, old King James 4, dared not. Right? The rest of them that were not gathering dared not join them. They were afraid. And you might think to yourself, yeah, see, that's what you get. That's not seeker sensitive. <laughs> it's very seeker insensitive. But it says, they dared not join them, but the people magnified them. The people had deep reverence for them. I mean, you know, a couple people died. They're like, do you need anything? <laughs> They're Christian neighbors, you know, need some salt? <laughs> you want to come to church? No. But if you need any sugar, if I can help you in any way. But what does it say? The next, next verse, 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. You think this isn't good for the gospel. And Luke says, the Holy Spirit says, no, this is good for the gospel. Right? Under the blessing of God, this kind of controversy is good for the gospel. When his people are being faithful, when God's blessing his people, and it collides with the darkness, when it collides with unbelief, when it collides with the pagan rulers, it's good for the gospel. This is the thing. And th this is you know central theme of the book of Acts, and we see it again here. So, where do you turn when you're threatened? Where do you turn when you're threatened? Where do you turn when you run into trouble? Where do you turn when people say all kinds of false things, foolish things about you, about your church, about your community, about your faith? Where do you turn? The early church shows us the faithful response. Lift, lift up your voice to God. Is that, your, is that your instinct? They're saying things about us again. There's another, there's another Vice article. All right, there's another... Sticker on some poll that says something not very nice. Or maybe it's in your own family. You're being accused of something. You miss, you're, you're the bad guy. Where do you turn? The early church shows us the faithful response. Lift up your voice to God. But it really isn't an accident that they lift up their voice to God. It, it, it's, it says, it's not just that they lift their voice up alone, notice that it's not an accident that they lift up their voice to God with one accord. They didn't just go back and say, Peter didn't say, I need some private time now, guys. It's been kind of intense. And you might have excused him if he did. Yeah, we understand, Peter. You know, I, need some, I, need, I, need to, I need a walk in the woods. I gotta, I gotta relax. I need to calm down. No. I mean, I mean, maybe they had some quiet moments, but that's not the emphasis. Where'd they go? They went to church. They lifted up their voices with one accord. This is what corporate worship is. That's what this assembly is. Sunday morning worship, Lord's Day worship, corporate worship. It's the gathering of the saints together to tell the Lord what has happened and to ask him for strength and boldness to obey no matter what. That's one way you could summarize church. We come to church to tell the Lord what's happened and ask him for boldness. 
and courage to obey no matter what. Many of the Psalms describe this. Psalm 31, verse 20, says, Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Where do you hide from the pride of man? The arrogance of man, the hubris of man. Where do you hide? The psalmist says he hides in the secret of the presence of God. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Where are you safe from the strife of tongues? The biting of tongues, the lies of tongues, the slander of tongues, the misunderstanding of tongues, the smearing of tongues. It says God keeps his people secret in a pavilion that no one can touch. Or this from Psalm 73. Psalm 73, the first half, is basically the psalmist talking about how good the bad guys seem to have it. The first part of Psalm 73, they're wicked and nothing bad's happening. They say all kinds of wicked things and they're still there. In fact, they got a promotion. Right? That's the first half of Psalm 73. And it gets to the, the, the sort of a, a breaking point in the center. There's a hinge in the middle of Psalm 73. He summarizes the problem where he says, All day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He says, I just keep getting beat up. And then he says this in 16, 70, Psalm 73, verse 16. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. When I tried to understand all this, it hurt too much. They have it good, I have it bad. They're getting blessed, I haven't had a promotion ever, or whatever. It's, it, it just keeps getting harder and harder. When I tried to understand this, it was too painful for me. And then he says this, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Then I understood their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou cast them down into destruction. Psalm 73. Worship is the central thing we do. Worship is the central thing we do. Worship is the central thing because worship is where we hide safely from the strife of tongues and where we learn to see and think clearly about everything. Then I went into the sanctuary, and then I understood. Where, where's your orientation point? Where, where's the place where you go to get your balance? Where's the place you go to see clearly? The Bible teaches that that place is gathering with the saints of God in worship. This is true, of course, of private prayer. You can call it to God every day, every moment. You can open the word. You can come before the Lord. You can come before his presence. You can hide yourself safely in his pavilion. But in particular, but in particular, it's when the, the people of God gather together with one accord, with one voice, and they cry out to God in worship. This is where God teaches us to see and think clearly about everything. Notice that in our text, the one accord of worship, so that's, that's where it begins in, in, in chapter 4, Right? They, they hear the report and they lift up their voice in one accord to God in worship. Notice that that translates into the one heart and one soul and one accord of community. Did you notice that? So then in 32, having worshipped, 
having spoke the word boldly, they have one heart and one soul as a community. And now they're seeing one another's needs and they're sharing with one another as each has the ability. The one accord of worship translates into, turns into the one heart and one soul and one accord of community. And we see the same thing down in 5.12. By the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. The one accord of worship is what drives the one heart and the one soul of community. Worship is the engine for community and culture. We live in a rootless culture. We live in a rootless time and age. Right? The, it's, broadly, we can describe this as post-modernity, post-modernism. It means that everyone is desperate for meaning, for roots, for identity, to belong, for community, for purpose. You can, so you can tell how desperate we are because we've named buildings identity. Community. Belong. You know what I mean? That's, that's what we do. It's like you can tell how bad it is when they start naming buildings after our desperate longings. That's postmodernism. And the more they talk about it, the less they have of it. The more they talk about identity, the less they know who they are, the more lost they are. Because they're trying to find their identity in themselves. They're trying to find their identity apart from the one who made them and made this world. And so we have to have it fixed in our hearts and minds that identity and community and fellowship and belonging and meaning and purpose can only be found in the one who made us. It can only be found there. And so it's found in worship. It's found in coming to the God who made us and kneeling down. It comes, it comes from coming to the God who created us and sent his son to save us. And so it comes from the gospel and worship. The Holy Spirit calls men and women out of their dark rootlessness. The gospel calls them out of their dark lostness. It calls them into the light. It calls them into the light of his son. And what do they do? They gather together in praise and worship. The spirit calls, the spirit gathers. The gospel and worship. And it's a result of those things that the Spirit forms community and Christian culture. You can't have Christian community apart from this. You can't have Christian community apart from the real Christian gospel, the sovereign grace of God that says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. The sovereign grace of God that says you were running from God, you were kicking against God, you hated God, you didn't want God. And God came for you, and he rescued you. While you were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us, so come. That, that's a, a humiliating gospel, but a humiliating gospel in all the right ways. Right? You, you are the problem. You don't have anything good. Stop trying on your own. Stop trying to dig down deep and find yourself, find your meaning, find your purpose, find your identity. It's not there. All you're going to find down there is gunk. All you're going to find down there is darkness and confusion and tangles. Christ has died so that you might find your life. 
But if this gospel and this worship are not the central things, it's not the Holy Spirit, and it's not really Christian community or culture. Even if there's, you know, Christian words, God words, Bible words. I'm convinced there's, there's thousands of churches in our land that are Ichabod. They, they say, you know what Ichabod means? The glory has departed, right? The glory is gone, right? They're, they're meeting there in a the shell, and they say God words, and God's not been there for a while. They're talking to themselves, and it's a social club. It's not the church. It's not Christian community. And notice, notice, notice what happens. As soon as people start gathering together, as soon as there's a real thing going on, and people notice, and it's attractive because it's full of joy, and there's real community, and there's real love, and there's real care, and real generosity, and real grace, what happens? Counterfeits show up on the scene right away. Counterfeits show up on the scene pretty quick, like Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, well, you know, look who we have here, a business opportunity. All these people with money. Uh, or whatever it was. You know, this is the happening thing. Maybe they were, they were, you know, early adopters. Oh, this is an up-and-coming thing. We want to be, we want to have influence in the city of Jerusalem. Obviously, these people are going to have influence in the next decade. We're getting in with them. We want to get elected to office. I want to make sure my business profits are high. Whatever it is. Trying to manipulate and lie their way into community. But Christian fellowship is built upon the grace of and truth of Jesus. The grace and truth of Jesus. The truth is, you're a sinner. The truth is, God is not. God is holy. The truth is that he sent his son for you. He died in your place. He was crucified to a Roman cross for your sin, paid for it all, was buried, rose again from the dead in his body to prove that your sins are gone. He is risen means your sins are gone. That's it. And that's the grace. It's all grace. Do you want it? Come. It's not manipulation. It's not lies. It's not covering something over. It's not pretending we're good when we're not. It's grace and truth. And so we have grace and truth to share because we have received grace and truth in Jesus Christ. This is the basis of our community. That's what it is. What, what, what is this? What's going on here? What's going on in our midst? What's this community? It's the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. It's the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, and worship is the engine that drives it all. So, how do we need to apply this? There's been a bunch of applications already, but the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. This passage describes multiple causes of fear. There's multiple causes of fear here in this text. The apostles have just been released from custody and threatened if they keep preaching. There's a cause for fear, potentially. Ananias and Sapphira died for lying to the Holy Spirit. That would be a cause for fear. And the text describes it. It says, A great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And of the rest, dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them, and believers were added more to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. It's verse 11 and verses 13 to 14. So first off, notice that fear came upon the church. Did you notice that? Great fear came upon all the church. Verse 11, fear came upon the people of God first. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And since worship is the center of it all, since worship is the center of our fellowship, 
We worship with reverence and godly fear. Hebrews 12 teaches this explicitly. And Hebrews 12 explicitly compares Old Covenant worship and New Covenant worship. And Hebrews 12 doesn't say, back then in the Old Testament, God was pretty mean and kind of grumpy, and it was really scary. But now that we're in the New Covenant, God you know, has turned over a new leaf, and he's a lot more friendly. That's not what Hebrews 12 says. Hebrews 12 says, in the Old Covenant, God shook the earth. God made Mount Sinai shake and quake and thunder, and the people could, couldn't stand it. But now, in the New Covenant, God is shaking both heaven and earth. He says in the New Covenant, you've not merely come to an earthly mountain that could be shaken, but if you get far enough away from it, it'll calm down. He says, no, in the New Covenant, you've come to a heavenly mountain, the heavenly Mount Zion, a mountain you can't get away from. And he says, this is, this is the heavenly Mount Zion in the heavenly places where all the saints are, where the angels innumerable are, where God himself is, where Jesus himself is. Therefore, let us worship God with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. I, uh, I used to think, when I read that passage, that God was saying, so be careful that you don't get burned. He's a consuming fire, so watch out. You know, like Nadab and Abihu, there's fire in there, stay back. But I've become convinced over many years that it's not merely a warning, though it is a warning, but it's actually a promise. You will be burned. He is a consuming fire. If you come near to him, you will be burned. The question is only, will you survive? Right? That's the question. When the fire falls, will it consume all the dross and will glory remain? That's the question. Right? If you're in Christ, then you can be a burning bush. If you're in Christ, you can have a tongue of fire over your head, the spirit consuming all the dross, and you're not burning up. If you're in Christ, the fire falls, and only the sin is consumed. But Ananias and Sapphira did not fear the Lord, and they thought they could get away with lying. Ananias and Sapphira came before the presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and they thought they could get away with lying. They did not fear the Lord. They pretended that God couldn't see it. Now this, you know, you all have had the experience of the little kid who, you know, did you eat the chocolate and there's chocolate smeared all over their face? No. Okay. Right? And that's what Ananias and Sapphira are like. That's what you're like, pretending you don't have sin. That's, that's what you're like when you say, no, 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 that's it. And God sees it. God sees it. This is the sin of hypocrisy. It's called being a hypocrite. But the Lord, and see, the Lord sees and knows all things. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. Psalm 11, verse 4. The question is not whether there is any impurity in you. The question is what do you do with it? The question is not whether there's any impurity in you. The question is what do you do with it? Proverbs 17 says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. If you cling to your impurity, you will be consumed with it, like Ananias and Sapphira. If you cling to the impurity, if you cling to your sin, then you will be consumed with it. Because you, the Lord's a consuming fire. You're coming into his consuming presence. 
You're coming to his consuming table. If you cling to your sin, you will be consumed with it. But if you cling to Jesus and his cross, your impurities will be burned away until you shine like gold. If you cling to Jesus and his cross, your impurities will be burned away until you shine like gold. So the charge is, fear the Lord, deal with your sin. Fear the Lord, confess your sin right away, every day. I, I, I noted this in the exhortation earlier, but we, we have the confession of sin here at the beginning of the worship service every week. This is not so that you will save up all your sins for Sunday. Do not do that. No, no. This is a reminder to confess your sin right away. This is a reminder to confess your sin all the way, right away, every day. And then this is a double check. A double check. Now, I mean, if it's been a doozy of a week and you've been sort of, you know, bad, as we say, then you, yeah, you might have, you might, it might be here and finally you break. Okay, fine, God, and you tell him everything. Okay, good, because you don't want to come into his presence clinging to your sin. Okay? But what it's supposed to do is remind you to do it every day right away. And that's why I would say if you're doing that every day and you really have a clean heart and you get down and kneel down and, and the pastor says, Zila, and then you, you might occasionally say, I can't think of anything. Well, then praise the Lord. What do you get? 30 seconds to praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins and lift up anything else on your heart and mind. Right? But it's, it's don't save up your sin for Sunday. This is, the, this is a reminder and a last chance. You want to take that into the heavenly places? You want to take that into the presence of God? You sure? Get clean. Come into the presence of God. Our confession of sin is a reminder of that. Second, notice that this godly fear had two effects on those outside the church, which I noted earlier. Some kept their distance, dared not join them, but magnified them, thought highly of them. And multitudes of others believed and poured into the church. What happens when God's people fear him rightly? Some will fear and say, all right, that's very nice. Can I do anything for you? No, I don't, I don't want to come to church. Thank you. And some will say, can I come to church? Some will say, what, what, what is this thing that you believe? Some will fear and magnify. Some will believe and pour into the church. One of the central reasons the world does not fear God is because the church does not fear God. One of the central reasons the world doesn't fear God is because the church doesn't fear God. And this has had disastrous effects on our land, on our society. When professing Christians don't fear God, they become hypocrites and liars, and they tend to do their evil in secret. When people who go to church, church-going people, tend to, they, when they become hypocrites, they try to hide their sins. But because they don't fear the Lord, the world stops fearing the Lord. And when pagans don't fear God, they do their evil deeds brazenly and in the broad light of day with parades and flags. You can also tell who the masses fear by who they give deference to, who they obey, who they trust. Instead of the living God, our culture fears the tin pot deities of science or health, or the economy, popular opinion, and so our land is easily manipulated as they fear all these tin pot deities and they don't fear the living God who made heaven and earth. But there is a good and godly fear that may cause some to initially keep their distance, 
but which is the right kind of respect of God that often leads to conversion. So, are you more concerned about fitting in? Are you more concerned that, you know, that lady down the way is not judging you and your mothering skills? Are you more concerned about what they think of your marriage? Are you more concerned about your homeschool curriculum and whether they think that's a good one or not? Are you more concerned about what they think about your health, your health choices? Are you more concerned about what other people think, about fitting in, about saying the right thing, thinking the right thing, keeping your head down in the culture? Or are you more concerned about having a clean heart before God? One of these is the fear of man, and the fear of man is a snare. And the other is the fear of God, and the fear of God is clean. In the fear of God is a fountain of life. In the fear of God is boldness and courage. In the fear of God is wisdom and knowledge. Whom do you fear? Whom do you fear? Let God be your fear. Let God be your dread. Father, teach us to fear you, to tremble before you with joy. And Father, we ask for this in particular so that the world around us would know that you are God and there is no other. That the world would know that you are the living God and that you have raised your son Jesus from the dead and made him the name above every name. Father, we ask you to do this in such a way that the world around us would tremble and that the world around us would be drawn to your grace, to your light, to your love. Because we ask for this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, singing. Everyone who is baptized and not under lawful church discipline is warmly invited to share this communion with us. Because of Jesus and because of his spirit, we are taught in the Bible that we are to believe that God is more ready to hear than we are to pray, more ready to answer than we are to believe. And this is most intensely true when it comes to our sins and our prayers for forgiveness. Listen to this from Psalm 32. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, mine iniquity I have not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this cause shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me with songs of deliverance. Notice that it's particularly the certainty of forgiveness that is the cause of everyone praying. When you know how God loves to answer the prayer to forgive you, it makes you want to pray way more. The immediate answer to the honest, humble prayer for forgiveness is songs of deliverance. This is not God, the great fussy librarian, reminding you of how overdue your confession is. This is God, the jailbreaker, God of prison breaks, the God of great escapes, the God of the getaway, rejoicing to break you out of that guilt and shame, singing while he does it, singing songs of deliverance. And humility believes this. Humility believes this. Because the word is this. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And how does God forgive? 
right away and all the way and with a huge grin on his face. God doesn't wallow around in your sins and he doesn't want you to wallow there either. When you honestly acknowledge your sin to him and ask for forgiveness, he has already forgiven you. Humility trusts that his word is true and moves on. Arrogance and pride insists that we are really big stuff and our big sins have made big messes. And yes, that's true. But God's grace is way bigger. So this is why we celebrate this meal every week and this is what we celebrate at this meal. Your sins are forgiven. We celebrate complete relief, complete acceptance, complete peace and joy. The words are, come and welcome. And even if your heart is still troubled right now, even if there is still a great struggle inside of you with sin, the simple question is this, what do you want more? Is it Christ? Then come. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge and the blessing, uh, the announcement that I forgot to mention earlier is there's a giant card, I think, out in the fellowship hall where the uh, festivities are immediately following the service. And um, that card, we're actually, um, we're coming up on our one-year birthday as King's Cross. And that's a thank you card uh, for the Christ Church elders and Christ Church for all their um, many kindnesses and blessings to us and helping us get off the ground. Um, and so before you go, Try to, there's, uh, I believe there'll be pens and markers over there for you to sign your name and, and, and write a quick note to them, but please um, sign that and say thank you. I think it's going to be here this week and next week, uh, and then we'll be giving it to them. Our one-year birthday is the first Sunday of April, so um, praise the Lord for that. But give, uh, make sure you um, go take a moment to sign your name and say thank you uh, to Christ Church. Um, as I was thinking about the themes here, uh, reminded me of a famous part in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, when, the, when the Pevensey children are first hearing about Aslan the lion from the beavers, and they hear that he's this lion, and he's a wild lion, and they ask, well, is he tame? And the beaver immediately responds, of course not. You know, is he safe? Actually, they say, is he safe? Of course not. He's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. And that's who you serve. Okay? He is, he's not tame. He's not safe. No, no. Don't get that impression, but he's good, and he's the king. So serve him faithfully. Serve, walk every day, each day, before him, knowing that he's your king, and he goes before you. Now go with his blessing on your heads. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And amen. Amen.